Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. El, el Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 5, versículos 21 a 43. Now, you've all been with us for the past several months in our series in the Gospel of Mark. And as you know, by way of reminder, the book of Mark book of Mark, it's about answering the question, who is Jesus? In chapter 1, verse 1, he's introduced to us as the Son of God, Jesus, the Christ. And, and through the first five chapters, Mark has slowly unfolded the revelation of just what that means. But here in chapters 4 and 5, he, he performs four miracles, each of them demonstrating his power. First, his, his power over creation as he stilled the storm on the sea. The second, the power over the demoniac, his, demonstrating his power over spiritual forces and demons. And this week, this is perhaps the most famous Markin sandwich of all of the Markin sandwiches. We've already come across a couple, but this is, this is one story that's been interrupted by another story, and then concluded at the, at the back end. And, and let, me, let me just say this. One of the reasons that gosh, I, I love how God in his wisdom has revealed his son through the Gospels is that it, it, it is not sanitized. The presentation of human life into which Jesus steps is to, to, to say it softly, messy. To, to say it more, more accurately, it's raw. It, it's, it's brutal. It, it's, it's unedited from the, the realities of the suffering and the pain and the, the, the evil that we encounter in our lives. And all four of these scenes in Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5, boy, oh boy, are they raw. And in these two passages, we are exposed to the rawness of human emotion, the rawness of the depth of suffering, the rawness of embarrassment and social ostracization. Friends, this is, <laughs> I feel like I end up saying this before every passage in Mark. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Mark, and, and I hope that the Lord will teach us. So, so here we go. We're, we're going to read the text together as we do every Sunday, but we're only going to read up to verse 35 to get the full dramatic and emotional effect that Mark is trying to achieve here with this Mark and sandwich. And, and remember, and you remember, remember this all throughout the book of Mark, Mark doesn't include much detail. So the details he does include and how he does arrange his presentation of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's all purposeful. Every single word is purposeful. So pay, pay attention. Beginning in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, 
My little daughter is at the point of death. Would you come? Lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, Jairus' house, some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And we'll stop there. This is God's word. Would you, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, would you, would you meet us in our vulnerability, in our weakness, in our suffering, in our doubt? Would you meet us in our insignificance and meet us with your Son? Would you reveal by your Spirit your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may believe in him, that we might trust in him, that we might worship him, that we might come to him in faith, not worried about interrupting him, knowing that he cares for his own. It's in his name we pray, amen. In Psalm 55, David, King David, records, my heart is in anguish within me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. Why? Why does he say this? He says, in the midst of this, because the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Every human being understands the terror of death. We're coming up on Halloween and Dia de los Muertos. Studies have shown that the popularity of these holidays is actually grounded in humanity's fear of death. And you say, how, how, 
how can that be? What do, you, what do you mean? I mean this. People love Halloween and horror movies and haunted houses because they're encounters with death that they're able to survive. Think about that. Humanity's fascination with horror movies has to deal with coming face to face with the fear of death and after two hours of terror in a theater coming out unscathed. It gives people a fleeting and artificial sense of victory over what every human fears most of all. That's why it's so popular. Because we get this artificial sense that death isn't really that much of a threat to me. Evil and cruelty and death itself. I can come face to face with it and come out unscathed. There's There's an adrenaline rush to it. But every lover of horror movies and all all their loved ones, when they actually do encounter death, no one comes out unscathed. Nobody. Years ago, a Canadian scientist named G.B. Hardy went on a quest to find the true religion. He said, all right, enough of this. I'm going to find which religion of all the world religions is the true religion. And after years, he concluded that, and and listen to this, this is so, so wise, so important. He concluded that the only question that anyone should ask with regard to the selection of a religion is, has anyone conquered death? And can that triumph be applied to me? Think about that. That, that, that is the only question worth asking of a religion. Because, because if nobody can conquer death, then the hope that whatever religion that is offers is for this life only. And this life, if, if you're sitting out there in, in the audience, say you're 25 years old or maybe 16 or 18 at the youngest in here, you have 80 more years at most and it will go by like that. But is there anyone who's conquered death? And if so, can that triumph be applied to me? And he researched far and wide, and he concluded very famously that all religious leaders in the world have occupied tombs. Only Jesus' tomb is empty. And this passage, friends, that this this is Jesus' first display to the world that, that maybe, just maybe, Jesus has the power over death. And that just maybe that triumph can be applied to you. This is the first hint in this passage that that might be so. But, but Mark wants you to see something else in this passage, not just that. It's the very reason why he sandwiches the story of the woman in between the story of Jairus' daughter. It's to answer this question. Does the one with all the power over creation and demons and death, does he actually care? about my day-to-day cares and concerns? Does the one who does battle with all of humanity's biggest fear have time for my little problems? Problems that, that to me, to you, seem heavy and weighty and and, and huge and all-consuming. But to him... If he is that one, those problems are like a drop in the bucket. Does he actually care? 
This passage tells us this, that Jesus is powerful enough to conquer death, but personal enough to care for you. Jesus is powerful enough to conquer death, but personal enough to care for you. Who is Jesus? Mark wants to show us that he is powerful enough and personal enough to be the very Savior that you need. And, and the, the arrangement of this text is, is very obvious. The, the structure is just right there before us. It's a story within a story, a miracle within a miracle. It's three scenes. Three scenes will, will frame the rest of this message. It begins with a, a desperate father and then moves on to a suffering woman and then concludes with what we haven't yet seen with a little girl. But within these three scenes, within the scenes of this desperate father, this suffering woman, and this little girl, there, there, are, there are six application points. And, and that's really how I'm going to structure this message today. This is, like I said, this is a raw passage. This, this is one where, where the transcendent Son of God demonstrates what theologians call his imminence, his nearness, his closeness to those he came to save. And because of that closeness, I want to get very personal and practical with you today. So three, three big points, but really this is about six points of application that I want you to take home with you talk to your spouse or your roommates or your family about. This personal Jesus wants to personally minister to you today. So let's, let's begin with, with this desperate father. Jesus and his disciples, they've crossed back to the western bank of the Sea of Galilee from the Gerasenes. They're now back in Capernaum. And and once again, of course, as has become usual by now, there is a crowd thronging about him, likely in the thousands at this point. And one among that crowd is a man named Jairus, and the text describes him as a leader of the synagogue. Now, this isn't a Pharisee. He's not a scribe. He's not, he's not a zealot. He's not a priest. He's more of like a uh, a lay, a lay leader in the synagogue, like an administrator. He, he oversees the, the, day, the day in, day out happenings of the synagogue. He is somebody who's very, very important. He has a high position. He's well-respected, but he's also part of the Jewish establishment, the, the religious establishment that already through only five chapters in Mark has defied Jesus openly, time and time again, and has already begun to plan and plot his death. So against him is this religious establishment. So Jairus is part of that establishment, yet here's Jairus falling at Jesus' feet. Just like the demoniac did in chapter 5, verse 7, yet the demoniac fell at his feet in fear. Jairus falls at his feet in desperation, believing that Jesus had the power to heal his daughter. And Jairus says, look down at, at verse 23, he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Would you come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live? His 12-year-old daughter, verse 42, 
says that she's 12 years old. She's right at the, the, the flower of life. The, the, the phrase here is what would be equivalent to she's at death's door. She's fading fast. The situation is desperate. All other resources have been exhausted. And if Jesus can't save her, nothing will. Commentator James Edwards says that these two stories in this passage could be titled, Hope in Jesus When All Human Hopes Are Exhausted. And that leads us to the first application point, and it's a significant one. This first of six application points is, is this, grace is found at the end of your rope. Grace is found at the end of your rope, at rock bottom. Choose your, choose your illustration. Choose your, your, your image. Grace is found in real desperation. And, and now, now listen, nobody asks to be brought to rock bottom, do we? <laughs> nobody enjoys being there. Nobody says, Lord, bring me to the end of myself today. Bring me to the point of utter desperation when I have nowhere else to turn. When all other methods and strategies I've tried have failed me. Everyone has failed me. Everything has failed me. But at that place, there's grace. Because at rock bottom, there is nothing left but Jesus. When, when, when there are still human resources and methods available, then we're, we're less likely to wholly lean on Jesus. Dependencies and self-sufficiency can be like clouds obscuring Jesus. Not until they're cleared away can we see the one that we really need. And that's what happened with Jairus here. So listen, are you, are you suffering? Are you hurting? Are, are you lost? Do you think that maybe sometime in the future you will be? And the answer is yes. You, you will be. You will hit rock bottom in some way, shape, or form. We, we, will, we will all encounter suffering in this broken world. Even if you're at a high point in life right now, this passage is an opportunity to prepare for that suffering. Oh, one of the greatest things that the gospel can do for us in this life is to prepare us for coming suffering, that, we, that we're able to meet it with faith, with courage, with strength. But even now, you might feel like you are at the end of your rope in some way. In, in rock climbing, as you all well know, uh, the rope is a climber's lifeline. But where on that rope is, is the climber connected to safety? What attaches the climber to safety? It's the knot at the end of that rope. And you may be sliding down that rope and nothing is breaking your fall, but it's just so that you can get to that knot, anchoring you to the grace of God. How are you nearing the end of your rope? And if you are do you see the grace at the end of the rope? See that, that maybe what the Lord is doing is removing the clouds of, of dependency on other things and, and dependency on yourself to clear your vision and help you to see that what you need is Jesus and he is there. 
So, so Jairus, he pleads with Jesus to go with him, and, and, and he goes with the crowd still pressing in. It says that they are literally thronging about him. And, and you, can, you can just sense the relief in Jairus, can't you? He says, oh, good. It may have been at the 11th hour, but I think there's still time, and, and Jesus is coming. This is working. We're going. We're on our way. But then as they're on their way, a woman stretches out her hand. And Jesus stops. And this is the second scene now, the, the, the suffering woman. James Edwards, same commentator, he says, with not a moment to spare, Jesus spares a moment. Among the crowd of thousands, there's one, one woman. And this woman she hasn't been out in public for a long, long time. Why? Look down at verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She suffered from a condition, a uniquely female condition. Her body was malfunctioning and, and constantly draining its own lifeblood. Again, this is another example of how Mark, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he, he's not concerned with presenting a sanitized view of life. This is real suffering. And this woman, she shared something in common with Jairus' daughter. She shared the number 12, 12 years. The same number of years that Jairus' daughter had been alive was the number of years that she had suffered from this condition without respite. Mark records that she had, she had exhausted all all of her money. She'd even seen every physician that, that was in the region, and it had only gotten worse. <laughs> Interestingly, Luke, who was a physician, when he writes his parallel account of this, doesn't include that detail, that the physicians made it worse, and actually just says she was incurable. But beyond her physical suffering, was her ceremonial and social suffering. The law in Leviticus 12 and 15 declared that when a woman experienced her menstrual period, she was ritually unclean for seven days after the flow of blood had stopped. Anything she sat on, lied down on, or touched would also be unclean. But for her, embarrassingly, awfully, painfully, that flow never stopped, so she wasn't allowed in public, ever, for 12 years. And she hears about this Jesus, and she thinks, man, I don't know if this is going to work, but nothing else has. I'm at the end of my rope. And so she reaches out, crucially, symbolically, with an empty hand. Nothing else to give. She can only receive by faith. Extends the empty hand of faith, and look at verse 28. She said, if I even touch his garments, I don't even have to touch him, I do think I will be made well. And as soon as she touched the very fringe, one of the tassels of Jesus' robe, verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body, she felt it, 
The, the, the pain and the discomfort and the weakness that had been characteristic of her whole life for 12 years, she felt that leave her. But notice, listen, this scene could easily end in verse 29. She, she, she's healed, right? Jesus had somewhere to be. But verse 30, look at verse 30. He stops. And he turns around in the crowd. This brings us to the second application point. Number two, Jesus invites your interruptions. Jesus invites and welcomes your interruptions into his grand divinity and his divine purposes. Jesus was interruptible. Praise his holy name. He was interruptible for this poor sweet woman. He perceived that divine power had flowed out from him. Who knows what that feels like? Only Jesus. And he asked, who touched my garment? So he, he stops, and he's, he's going one direction. He stops, and he turns around in the crowd, and the whole crowd probably falls silent. He says, who touched my garment? Now, the disciples think he's just searching for information, and so like they do over and over, again, this is a non-sanitized view of humanity. His disciples are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. They sarcastically respond to him. They go, Jesus, what? There are a hundred people touching you. What do you mean who touched your garment? They didn't get it. Jesus is asking, who touched my garment? He's not seeking information. He is summoning the woman. Here's what you need to notice. The woman wanted something. Jesus wanted someone. Jesus was interested in her. He's on his way to save a dying girl. There is no more urgent situation. There are thousands of people pressing in on him, and yet he takes an interest in her. Oh, and we're meant to see that. One pastor said well that this precious moment testifies to the infinite worth of the human individual to Jesus. For God so loved the world and included in that world is every single individual that he loved that he gave his only son she was not too insignificant for Jesus. He wasn't in too much of a rush to stop and care for her. She wasn't an inconvenience to him. Friends, yes, Jesus has bigger things on his mind than your life. He has an entire universe to maintain but he wants you to interrupt him with your problems. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, pray without ceasing. He says in Matthew 7, 7, he says, ask, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. He tells a parable of, of this neighbor who just won't leave his neighbor alone. And he says, be like that neighbor. He says, be persistent. He says, interrupt me because I'm interested in you. I don't want to just give you things. I don't want to just heal you and dispense things from me. I'm interested in you, personally interested in you. Listen, 
the reality of the Christian life is that we tend to want to interrupt Jesus far less than he wants us to interrupt him. That the issue is not that we're worried that, that he won't have time for us to interrupt him. No, no, no. The issue is that we don't think about interrupting him as our for, first course of action nearly often enough. And sometimes it takes being brought to the end of our rope. That's how this is progressing. Sometimes it takes, to, sometimes it takes being brought to rock bottom for us to think, maybe even if I touch Jesus, if I just reach out to him, he'll be the savior I need him to be. Listen, the woman reveals herself. He summons her. She reveals herself, and she falls down again. Again, somebody falling down at Jesus' feet, and she's terrified again, just like the disciples in the boat after the calming of the storm. She's terrified, not because of the, the, the social ignominy, but because she has just come into the presence of the divine. And look at this, verse 33. Interestingly, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Application point number three. You can be honest with Jesus. You can be honest with Jesus when you come to him. When you do come to the end of your rope and you do interrupt him, you can be honest with him. The, 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 woman, the woman had essentially committed two crimes. One, she, she had gone out in public and touched a bunch of people, making them ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, and then she touched Jesus. So, so there was this broad offense, and then there was this personal offense. And Jesus summons her, and she tells him, yeah, when I touched your garment, I, I could tell I'd been healed. But she also is honest with him, tells him the whole truth. Yes, I violated the Torah. I violated the law. I came out in public. I did touch you. I made you ceremonially unclean. Jesus' holiness isn't made unclean by uncleanness. Actually, we are made holy <laughs> by his holiness when we come into contact with him by faith. It only goes one way. She's honest with him. She was a lawbreaker. And Jesus' response, especially in that day, is staggering. Look at verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You're hard-pressed to find a sweeter statement from Jesus than that. What I want you to notice is that he publicly declares her clean. He doesn't rebuke her. He does the opposite. He, he takes away her shame in front of every, everybody, and he says, hey, listen, everybody, she's clean. She's been healed. Don't shun her anymore. There's no reason for, for you to tell her to stay inside and away from everybody. She has rejoined society. Friends, we're, we're, we're lawbreakers. We are unclean sinners. We are faithless, faithless. We are inconsistent. We are trembling. We are weak disciples, if we're disciples at all. But when we interrupt Jesus, when we're at the end of our rope, we don't have to present better than we actually are. We don't have to present our social media selves. 
and present a prettier picture than the ugliness that's actually in our hearts. When you humbly come in confession and repentance, we heard this at the, at the retreat a couple weeks ago, when we humbly come in confession and repentance, this is the kind of grace that he will meet you with. He will take away your shame. He will forgive you. And that leads immediately to the fourth application point. Number four here, you need salvation. Much more than you need anything else. You need salvation. You need the grace of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Much more than you need anything else. Look down at Jesus' response to her one more time. Verse 34. He says to her, your faith has made you well. That word well in the Greek is sozo, which also means and is usually translated as saved. Again, Mark is being very intentional here. There are actually two other words that can be translated heal in Greek, and Mark uses them both in this passage. In verse 29, he uses one of those words to, when he says, and she was healed of her disease. And then in verse 34, at the latter part of verse 34, when he says, be healed of your disease, that is the other word for heal. But when he says, daughter, your faith has made you well, what he's actually saying is your faith has saved you. Daughter, you have been saved. In other words, yes, you need to be healed of your condition. I'm well aware of this, but there is a much more serious condition you need to be healed of. And because of your faith, I've just, re I've just restored your very soul. And I've given you a name in the very family of God. This is the only place in all the Gospels where Jesus looks at a woman and calls her daughter. Again, this is no accident. This is a declaration that, that woman, you, you, you suffering, ostracized woman, you are now part of the family of God. Daughter. What Jesus did first for this woman is his first priority for you. And if you are at the end of your rope and you don't know Jesus by faith, you're not sure of it, maybe you are sure that you, you don't. I haven't believed in Jesus in that way. You may not be aware of just how dangerous the situation is if you fall off the rope. You may think that it's the danger of financial ruin or, or sickness or a broken family or, or even death. But if you don't know Jesus by faith, what's at the end of that rope, beyond the end of that rope, is God's righteous judgment for your sin. And Jesus' first priority for this woman, for you, when he came into the world, for everybody who was on his mind, was salvation from their sin. That is his first priority. And friends, even if you are a Christian, you can never forget that. Never let that pass from your mind, from your awareness. Now, returning to the story, to give the fullness of James Edwards' quote, he said, with not a moment to spare, Jesus spares a moment, a moment that proved to be fatal. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? I can just imagine 
Jairus looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, she's dead. Saying, Jesus, I understand that that woman needed help, but couldn't you have gone back for her? Couldn't you have waited? She's dead. We had time. We were on our way. If we'd gotten there, she'd be alive now. She's his little daughter and people from his household have just come and said I'm so sorry Jairus she's dead and we're meant to feel that if you're a parent put yourself in those shoes and just imagine that oh man and that brings us to the to the third part of the story read along with me the rest of this because because it's not the end. For Jairus, desperation had turned to despair, but this wasn't the end. But Jesus, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, just sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Do not fear, Jairus. Only believe. Believe like that woman just believed. This is why I have come, Jairus. This is no mistake. This is very similar to the news that Jesus got and, and Martha's response when Lazarus had died. And Martha says, Jesus, if you had just not delayed. And Jesus goes, this is part of the plan. Jesus continued on his way with only Jairus, Peter, James, and John. These disciples, these three disciples would come to be known as his, his inner circle. We're going to get to know them really well. They're kind of at the center of every major remaining story in Mark. And when they arrived at the house, the funeral was already taking place, and it was, it was a commotion. In modern funerals, we, we express our sorrow through, through silence, right? We, we, we hold it in, we mask it. Maybe there are some tears that are shed, but they're quiet, somber affairs. In the ancient world, you expressed sorrow by expressing it, and the more you expressed it, the more sorrowful you were demonstrating yourself to be. In fact, these mourners and wailers, they were hired mourners, professional wailers 
who, who would kind of rile up the family, rile up the loved ones of the person who died so that they could adequately express their sorrow. People were tearing their clothing in Matthew's parallel account. And Matthew's parallel account said there were flute players who were playing dissonant dirges. It's this crazy commotion. In fact, so essential was this that in Jewish culture, a, even a very poor family was expected to have at least two flute players and one mourner. This is how things were done. And Jesus comes to them and says, hey, what's going on? Why are you guys doing this? This child's not dead. She's just asleep. And these mourners, they, they don't share Jairus' faith. They mock him. And, and while what follows is so incredibly tender, he, he in Matthew, when he arrives, he, he asks them all to leave. But once they laugh at him, he looks at them and he says, get out. Get out. And he invites Jairus and the girl's mother and Peter, James, and John inside. Picture the scene. This sweet little girl lying on her bed. She's laying completely still. The expression that she wore the moment that she died still rests on her face. And Jesus stoops down and he places one hand under her, her hand and and the other hand on top of it, and he draws it close to himself. And, and with a kind smile, no doubt, he looks at her and he says, Talitha kum. Talitha, it's translated here as little girl, but more commonly it would, it would refer to little lamb. Kum means arise. And he, so he looks at her and says, little girl, arise. And, and her eyelids flutter open, and breath returns to her lungs, and she stands up, and she walks around. Here's the fifth application point. Jesus is a tender Savior. Jesus is a tender Savior. When you come to the end of your rope, and you interrupt him, and you are honest with him, oh, he meets you with tenderness. He looks at the ostracized woman and he calls her daughter. He looks at this little girl and he says, little lamb. Jesus had come to do a brutal work. He had come to be whipped and flogged and mocked and scourged and crucified and speared through the side. He had come to take sin and evil and cruelty and, and God-hating pride on himself to bear the eternal wrath of God in himself. He, he will come again. Revelation 19 describes him as a warrior riding on a white horse to bring final judgment to the whole world. There is, there is a very realistic image of Jesus who is Jesus the king, Jesus the warrior. He came to do battle with death. And if we're not careful, the, the, the warrior Jesus is the only image we have of him when we come to him. Fire in his eyes, righteously commanding sin and death and Satan and anybody who rejects him to get out. Get out of God's house. Get out of my kingdom. There's no place for you here. 
and we come with our sin. And we're honest with him. And we tell him the whole story. And we wonder if that's the Jesus that's going to meet us. But, but contrast that image of Jesus with the one here. Isaiah 42.3 says, says of the Messiah that a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Friend, when you're at rock bottom, you, you are like a bruised reed. You're like a smoldering wick. The flame is barely there. He won't put it out when you come to him. Or to use another familiar image, when you are at the end of your rope, he's not going to nudge you off and say, see ya. If you belong to him and you come to him in desperation and humility, he doesn't say, hey, listen, get it together. You can do this. You got this. I believe in you. Or, or come on. This is the twelfth time you've come to me with this. Well, he certainly won't say, oh, I'm done with you. I've had enough. He says to you, and again, this is intentional. This isn't, this isn't overly emotional, manipulated kind of stuff. He says to you, son, daughter, little lamb, come to me. And by faith in me, you will have life. By faith in me, you will be saved. By faith in me, I will hold you and not let you go. And that brings us to the very final application point. Number six. You can trust Jesus alone to overcome death. And here's where the rubber meets the road. If you've been on the fence about which religion is the true religion, if you've been on the fence about whether or not Jesus is worth committing your entire life to, here's where it is. This is the crux of the matter. This is the watershed. This is where the decision point comes in. That Jesus calls this little girl, little lamb, is actually theologically significant because in, chap in John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, my lambs hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And this little lamb in death heard the voice of her shepherd and she responded coming to life immediately walking in verse 43 Jesus says hey somebody get her something to eat the, the walking and the, and the eating demonstrates the fullness of her restoration and can you imagine she's been sick for weeks likely and has now been dead for half a day she's probably hungry it's a very practical recommendation Listen, can anyone conquer death? And can that triumph be applied to me? There's two questions. Can anyone conquer death? Yes, Jesus can. He's just demonstrated that. To the second question, can that triumph be applied to me? Well, that's yet to be revealed in the book of Mark, which is why Jesus tells them in verse 43 not to tell anybody, because he had just healed and saved a woman. He had just resurrected a little girl from the dead. But the means by which saving and healing and resurrection life would come to be made available to all had yet to take place. 
that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't that Jesus can, hell, can, can heal select individuals, that he can save just a couple here and there. No, no, no. It was much broader than that. This was global. This was history-spanning. And the means by which that would be accomplished hadn't yet been revealed, and nobody saw it coming. You would only believe it if it actually happened. And it did. He had come to die on a cross to bear the sins of all who would believe in him, to bear our suffering and our sorrows in his body. There's even a hint of this in the second scene in verse 29. He refers, he refers to her disease as a mastix which means whip or scourge. This, this, this flow of blood, her, her suffering, her disease, her illness, he calls it a mastix. It's the same word used to describe the whip that Jesus was, was lashed by 39 times. This is Mark pointing forward to the reality that Jesus would bear her pain. He would bear her scourge. He would bear her torment. He would bear our torment on himself. And then he would die. And then he would rise again, defeating death finally and applying that triumph to you and to me and to anyone who believes. So yes, G Jesus is powerful enough to defeat death but he is personal and tender enough to apply that triumph to you. He can. And by grace through faith in his name, he will. Son, daughter, trust in him. Would you pray with me?